Good morning, Mission View Church. It is so good to see you. Isn't it nice to have such a sunny, perfect day? It's awesome. It's awesome for us to worship together. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you really engaged your mind and your heart to the words of all the songs, you would notice that there's already been a message that's been preached. And I hope it ministers deep within you. I'm so thankful for a band that does everything they can to keep attention off themselves and direct all attention to God. I don't know if you know how rare that is, but that is just an incredible thing that we could have all attention focused on our God. So we're going to continue our series in vital signs in Philippians chapter 2. So open your Bibles to Philippians 2, and we'll be looking at 12 through 18. I'd like you to think about something that maybe you did for your kids when they were young, or you're doing for your children right now. Now, I don't know if this has happened in your family, but it did in my family, and that was marks of growth. Now, what I'm talking about is on, on an annual basis, basic, probably on the birthday, you would take the child and you would go to the wall, a special place where all the kids were, had their marks, and you put their mark above their head as to how tall and the date right there on that wall, and then they get to see how they grow throughout the years. Now, for most kids, this is probably an encouraging thing because they saw how much they grew from last year. Now, some kids who might have growth problems, it could be a little discouraging, but for the most part, I think it's something that if you do this, that children look forward to because they want to see how much they've grown. In their minds, they want to be a big kid. They want to grow and they want to be seen as, a, as the big person. Now, you know that happened because of things that you did when you were a kid. Do you remember when you used to promote yourself a couple months before your actual birthday? You know, you, your 10th birthday's coming up and it's two months before, but I'm 10 now. And you tell people, well, I mean, in two months, or maybe you might tell them that. I don't think we do that anymore, do we? At least some of us. Or when you go to the doctor, you stand up and you have that thing that comes out and when the doctor's looking up there to see how tall, you're kind of like standing on your toes a little bit because you want it to be tall. You want it to be big. See, there was something, I think, ingrained within us to want to mature. There's something as a child that you want to grow up and you want to be seen as the big kid. You know, church, I think there's a lesson for us in that because I think the same thing should be true of us on a spiritual basis. We should want to measure our growth. We should want to grow up spiritually and desire that. It's unusual for a person to say, you know what, I would like to be a spiritual runt. That's my dream. A spiritual runt would just be awesome. See, no one actually says those words, but sometimes in our actions, we're content with less spiritually. See, the author of Hebrews was addressing this very issue, and this is what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 5. He says, in fact, though by now, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You should have grown up to the place where you're now teaching God's word. He says, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God, God's word, all over again. You need milk, 
not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So today what I'd like us to do is I would like to evaluate whether or not we are growing up. Are we on this side where we have stunted spiritual immaturity? Or are we growing to the place where, that we can discern, that we can feed ourselves, that we can do as the passage says, by constant use have trained ourselves to, to distinguish between good and evil? Are we growing up? Now, what we're going to do today is in order for us to understand what growing up means, we have to compare ourselves with the perfect model. And our passage, in our passage, Paul, in the very first word, uses the word therefore. Josh mentioned it. Adam mentioned it. You always see what it's there for. It refers back to the previous passage. So now that he's talked about what personal humility looks like, what Christ-like humility looks like, now he's bringing it right to us. Here's what it has to look like for you and I, and we need to contrast our life with the life of Christ. See, that's not a new concept because in 1 John, we're told that we are to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. So that should be our desire, to compare our life with Christ. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to contrast Christ's life with what the, the, the Philippians' life should look like. And I've identified seven marks of maturity, seven marks of humility. See, maturity and humility go together. They may not seem to, uh, should go together. You might look at that and say, well, how does, how does that blend together? Well, humility has to go with maturity. Because if you don't have humility, then we just have knowledge. And knowledge, according to Corinthians, puffs up. It says, but love edifies. We need to have humility of Christ with our maturity. And that helps us be a Christ-like example to those around us. So I have one simple question for each of us to ask at every measuring point, all seven points. And the simple question is this. Is this true of me? This is true of me. Now, if you don't think that you can be objective, I probably know somebody in your family that can be objective. You just talk it over with your spouse, or you talk it over with your boyfriend or girlfriend or a friend that, that knows you pretty well, and say, are these things true of me? From you looking into my life, Let's pray that God would use his word to really convict our heart and encourage our hearts. Lord Jesus, as we contrast ourselves with your word and with the character of Christ, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see areas in our life that we need to mature, that we need to be humble in, and help us to, to be these things because you instruct us to do that. And I pray that in your name. Amen. So the very first mark is obedience. It certainly was true of Christ. He was obedient to the point of death on a cross, right? And so this is what Paul says to the Philippians. They need to be obedient. Look at verse 12. 
He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, but before we talk about obedience, let me just talk about the special relationship Paul had with them. He uses the word, my beloved. That is a term of endearment for somebody that knows somebody else on a very deep and intimate level. It would be like saying, my dearest friends. And so this is coming out of the context of relationship. Why is that important? Because when you are coming from a context of relationship, you can say things that are truthful, that might be hurtful, but yet you're willing to take it. Now, if I had a guest speaker here next week, which we're not, but if I had one and he was to come in here and you didn't know him at all, and he would say, now you got to do this and you got to do this and you, 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 you would all say, get that guy out of here. What's he talking about? How does he know us? But we're coming from a context of relationship with those that are on the preaching team. And so we can speak truth in love. This is what Paul's doing. He's speaking truth in love. Now the first truth is actually an encouragement to the Philippians. Because he says, I want you to continue to obey. You've had a pattern of obedience. And I want you to continue to obey. So why was obedience such an important issue with the Apostle Paul. This is why. Because obedience is what creates a gap between those who desire to be faithful and those who are faithful. I'm going to say that again. Obedience creates a gap between those who desire to be faithful and those who are faithful. Last week, Pastor Adam said, he says in the application, be willing to put God's word above your words. This is really what he's talking about. The person that says, this is God's word. I am going to be obedient to it. I'm not just going to say I'm going to be obedient and desire obedience. I'm going to do it. You see, we desire things all the time, don't we? We desire to lose weight. We desire to be faithful in God's word. We desire to live within a budget. We desire to go to church on a regular basis. But then there are those that actually are living within a budget. There are those that are actually going to church on a regular basis. There are those that are disciplining themselves in what they consume so that they could regulate their weight. And there are those that are growing spiritually because they're doing it. See, the difference, my friends, is obedience. You see, obedience doesn't make excuses. If it is a conviction that something needs to happen in my life, this is the individual that says, I will make an intentional plan to do that. I'm done with excuses. It is an issue of obedience, and I must make it a clear priority. See, Jesus taught this. He taught obedience. You remember the commission he gave to the disciples just before he ascended into heaven? He said, uh, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And he says, but there's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples. There's two commands. Go, make disciples as a command of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a command. And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 
See, we got commands here of what we are to do. We are to go. Not an option. We are to have a witness to those around us. We are to make disciples, pour into others, which implies that we have, be, have to become a disciple ourselves. We are to baptize others, which means that we should be baptized as well. We need to teach, which means that we need to be taught. We need, we're to look at, we look at other places in the scriptures. We're commanded to pray, to be into God's word. We are commanded to love others, to serve others. We're commanded to give generously and hilariously, not only with our time, but also with our resources that God has given us. These are all commands that God has given us. And the, the difference between somebody who is a Christ follower in name only and a true Christ follower is the one who's doing it in obedience. This is the bedrock of Christianity. So here's my question. Are you the real deal? Are you the true obedient believer. Is this true of me? Here's the second mark that he goes into. The mark number two, uh, I'm calling it work out your salvation, but you could put a slash there in summary of it. He's talking about maturity. Let me explain. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul is giving instructions for them to work out their salvation. Well, what happened? Why do I work for my salvation? What's Paul talking about? Well, the key word here is work. The word work means it was an agricultural term, which meant to work the fields. It was a farming term. And so the farmer would always work the field for what purpose? They wanted a harvest, right? We should always want a harvest if you're a farmer, and there should always be a harvest or a desire for a harvest in our life. And this is a responsibility that God puts upon us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are to work in our life in such a way that we are producing fruit. Now, I will cover this in a minute, but he's not talking about working for your salvation because that happened a long, when we gave our life to Christ. This is a different type of salvation that he's talking about, and I'll clarify that in a minute. But he says right now he wants us to have fruit in our life. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that that's what he wanted. Jesus said this in John 15. He said to his disciples, he says, you you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear what? Fruit. Fruit that will last. We see it in the parable of the talents, don't we? Jesus tells this parable about how somebody's been given 10 talents, 5 talents, 1 talent. And what happened to the people that had 10 and 5 talents? They went and multiplied it. They doubled their efforts. Because they knew that the owner that they were accountable to wanted to have a harvest. But the person that went and buried their talent in the ground, he had a very firm words to him of judgment because he did that. See, the expectation is that we are accountable to God. And that's why the fear and trembling's there. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The fear here is not like going through a ghost house or, you know, haunted house. It's not that kind of fear. It is a fear of reverence. It is of awe. 
It is the, it, on a human level, we might go before a judge. I hope you don't, but if you go before a judge, you're going to be saying, yes, your honor, no, your honor. You're not going to be just flipping and say, yeah, whatever, man. It's just not going to work. Because you respect the position of authority, and we are under authority, and this is why he says, we have a fear in all of God. So what is the salvation he's talking about? There's three ways in which the word salvation is used in the scripture, and it teaches us about a theology. There's another word that's used, it's called sanctification. The word sanctification that's used in the scripture means to be set apart. So in salvation, we are set apart. And there's three ways in which God sets us apart. When we first give our life to Christ, in the midst of our growing as a Christian, and when we finally go to heaven. The first one is called positional sanctification if you're into theological terms. Positional sanctification is the position we are in. God took us out of darkness, he placed us into the light, and he says, this is my child. We did nothing to earn it, so therefore, it is a position that we have because of grace. Because of grace. Look at this scripture. This is describing this salvation. He says, in him, for Ephesians 1.13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, you were washed, and he's talking about of past sins, but you were sanctified. In other words, God set you apart. That should help us understand that we are special with God because he loves us as his ch child, and he rejoices. If all of heaven rejoices when a one person repents and comes to faith in Christ, you better believe our Father's like, yeah, I am so pleased. I am so pleased to sanctify, set that person apart. But here's the other sanctification. It's called progressive sanctification in theological terms. This is what God's doing in our life. This is what this passage is talking about. It's the part of maturity. It's the part of growing up. And sometimes in this sanctification, we become rebellious and go our own way. And so God has to bring discipline into our life to get us back on the path. And he uses trials and circumstances and all the storms of life to develop us in the sanctification. And the goal in this sanctification is that we eventually will be glorified. But let me give you a scripture passage other than the passage we looked at, other than Philippians 2. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He wants to set us apart. So the future sanctification is what I call perfect sanctification in theological terms. That's the day that we get to look forward to. That's the day that this trial of this life ends and we are completed in him. Now here's my desire. My desire from point A to point Z is that I would look more like Jesus. Is that your desire? Because that's what this is all about is that we would become Christ-like in our behavior, in the way that we live out our life. See, what God is doing when he says this, he says, I want fruit in your life. I want a harvest. 
Here's a question. Where's the fruit in your life? Now, when I was a kid, this question was presented in a different way. Watch this. Yes, we know it's a big fluffy Talk bun. Talk to the manager. It is the manager. Where's the beef? He's putting us under the supervisor. If you ask me what you did, we should call the owner. At Wendy's, the hamburger we modestly call a single has more beef than the Big Mac or Whopper. We've got the owner. Hello? Where's the beef? <laughs> Wendy's kind of people never ask, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody there. I really don't. <laughs> How many of you remember that commercial? Some of you guys are old enough. Where's the beef? Where's the fruit? And in a less comical way, I think there's going to be a day in which we are held accountable for our obedience in the fruit in our life. Are you working the field of ministry that God has for you? Do you know what that ministry is all about? If you don't, please understand that's what we're here for. We named our church Mission View so that we could come alongside of people so that you could view your mission in life. Your community group leaders, your elders, your deacons, we want to help you in that. So we move on from there. Obedience, maturity, here we are. God works in you. That's Mark number three. Mark number three, God wants to do a work in you. Now notice what Paul says that work is. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, this kind of balances the equation. The last part was what we are to do. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But he says, when that happens, I am going to do a work in you to will and to work in your life. This is what I want to do in you. Now, in order for this to happen, I will say that there's a kind of a caveat that must be true of you and I in order for God to do his work completely in us. And that is we have to be connected to God. We have to be submitted to God. Why is that? Well, let me put it this way. For a car to go forward, you must put what in it? Gas. Okay, you have to put fuel. It's not that hard. This, this is a, you're not going to be graded on this quiz. Okay, for a lamp to radiate its light, it must be plugged into the outlet. Now, this is for those that are trying to conserve energy, for those that have bought a hybrid car, okay? For a hybrid car to be efficient, the battery must be charged. See, in all three of these analogies, there is a connection to the power source. And if there's a connection to the power source, then you have the energy to go. And the reality is that is what Jesus wants of us and he teaches us. He told his disciples this in John 15. He says, I am the vine, the power source, the source of life. You are the branches that goes into the vine. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will what? He will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a simple equation. If we're connected to Christ, we're connected to the power source and he can bear fruit in our life. He will do a work in us. But if we are disconnected and we are doing our own thing, yes, we might be going to church. Yes, we might listen to the music. We might even raise a hand during a song. But if our life doesn't measure up and we're doing our own thing out there, then we're not connected. And you're going to wonder someday, why isn't it that God's working in my life? Why is it not happening? We have to be connected. So the question is, are you closely connected to God? See, if you're not, God is patient. God becomes the prodigal father. He becomes the prodigal father. And he says, I will wait till you come to the end of yourself And then when you reconnect with me, when you abide in me, I will do a work in you. I'm so thankful that I don't have a God that is like, you know what? You messed up? I'm out of here. We have a God that loves you so much that when we do go off on our own and we go into our own little tangent, God says, I'm waiting for you. I love you. You're my child. But when we do connect, the passage says that God will do two things. It says that he will do his will and his work in us. Now his will is is what he wants to accomplish, his plan, the race he has marked out for you. But here's the interesting thing about the word work. The word work means to energize or to provide enablement. In other words, God will show you his plan for your life when you're connected, his will, and he will give you the energy that you need to do his will. This passage has been so encouraging to me this week. Uh, I, I give this as a testimony, not of me, but of God's strength. And there's a certain uh, uh, medication that I am currently on that takes all the chemicals out of my body that would naturally give me drive in life. All kinds of drive. The drive to get up in the morning, sex drive, all kinds of drive. I know that's more than you want to know about your pastor. I'm an open book. And I got to be honest that that's been the most difficult thing for me because I've always been a highly driven person. And I'd I'd rather have my right arm cut off than not have drive. But my prayer lately has been, God, I believe in the supernatural power that you give. And I believe that whatever my body is lacking, you can make up and you can give the drive. And I give testimony to only God, only praise to him, because I feel like that's happening in my life. He does it for me. He does it for you. Because he wants you to accomplish the work he has for you. And so here's the question. The question, is this true of me? Is God at work in your life? Here's the fourth mark. Now, this is, this is very, very practical. The fourth mark is that we are not to complain. Notice what he says. Do nothing, do or do all things without grumbling or dispute. 
See, this verse has a horizontal and a vertical application. Adam talked about a horizontal and vertical application last week. We have one this week as well. The horizontal application is dealing with the first word, grumble. The word grumble means to whisper in low tones, to complain or to, complain or to mutter in low tones a voice. This is addressing what we do with each other. This is, this is the kind of complaint that can be silly or serious. It's the, come over here. Hey, can you, I can't imagine wearing the clothes that that guy has on. Or that dress is hideous. It's those kind of complaints that will come to each other that are just absolutely silly. But they can range to the serious where we're criticizing leadership in the church without bringing a proper charge. And we undermine the leadership of the church and we become divisive in the church. So he says, no, I don't want any of that. If you are a, a mature, humble Christ follower, you are to do as Christ. Christ utter, utter, utter no complaints. If he ever had a time to complain, it would have been on the cross. He did not complain in the garden. He just simply asked God, if Father, if this cup can depart from me, may it. But he never complained. See, God wants a lack of complaint. He doesn't want complaining so that there could be unity within the body of Christ. Now, here's the other part of the equation. The vertical part is in the second word, disputing. The word dispute means to question or to criticize, and it has an implication towards deity, towards God himself. So in other words, we are not to question or to criticize God negatively. See, this is the vertical application. Now, I believe there's times in the scriptures where we see examples of people that ask questions to God. Why is this happening, God? Why, why does it seem like my enemies constantly prevail over me? Doesn't, doesn't that sound familiar? David said that. He's not talking about that kind of complaint. He's talking about the complaint that would attack the very character of God. And I will tell you when this is a temptation. It is a temptation when we go through a crisis that we cannot understand. It is a devastating crisis. It's the loss of life. It's the loss of freedom. It's the loss of dignity. And we say, God, you're at fault. And we criticize God. That's when we sin. Now, God still loves us. He still accepts us. And he'll still forgive us. But the sign of maturity is that we come to understand that even though I don't understand my circumstance, God is completely in control. And I trust that. I trust that. So this is what he wants of us. Interestingly, Jesus had every opportunity to question God. And that's what Satan wanted. Remember when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days? And Satan comes along and what was he trying to do? He was trying to get him to question God. But how did Jesus address it? He gave him the word of God. He went back to the truth. And that's how we deal with our doubts is that we go back to the truth because the truth will set us free. That's what Jesus told us. So the question here is, is the truth setting us free from complaints? Is this true of me? 
we move on. Mark number five is blameless. You could say blameless and pure. But blameless, this is what Paul says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now the word blameless means to be above reproach. This doesn't mean that we are sinless, but it means that there is no provable charge against us. Let me illustrate this in a very lighthearted way. My wife and I love to play cards. We love to play euchre in hand and foot. And often we will have people over to play cards at our house. On occasion, I will be accused of being a cheater. Can you imagine? And I stand here to testify that I am above reproach because there's no provable charge that such shenanigans would ever take place. The truth of the matter is these charges come from inferior card players <laughs> who are filled with jealousy. <laughs> the word above reproach really does mean that there's no provable charge. What's interesting is that this is the very word that's used of an elder. The main qualification of an elder is that there's no provable charge. And but he's putting it on the playing field of all believers. No provable charge. Could anybody in your office bring a provable charge against you because of your conduct? Because they hear your language and they say, that language is inconsistent with your claim to know Christ. Or they look at your integrity. They see that you cut corners. And that the cutting corners is, is, is so clearly against this Christianity thing that you proclaim. And we go down the line. Who can bring a provable charge against us? So when we evaluate our life, we ask ourselves, are we blameless? Now the other word he uses is, is he uses the word innocent. Now, the word innocent means pure. It's a pure substance. It was used of pure wine. Now, pure wine was often, by, a, by a, a shady dealer, would water it down so that he could have more wine, and he would sell it that way. And so he wanted it diluted, and he would sell it as pure wine. And so what God is implying here is that we are to be above reproach. We are to be not watered down in our life in terms of our morals, in terms of our convictions. We are to hold the bar very high in our life. Because this is the only way that the second part of the verse can be accomplished that we will shine, that we will, will exist in a crooked and depraved generation. What God is looking for is for those that would set a contrast to a crooked and depraved generation. And guess what? When there is a contrast between you as a light and the, the world that is crooked and depraved, Eventually, there are going to be people from here that are going to look to you for the answer, and that's how you will be a witness. Yes, there will be some that criticize you. There will be some that will mock you for your firm stance and think it's old-fashioned. They'll think it's archaic. It's just, you're, you're a crazy, radical nut. Why would you do that? But they're just simply, simply feeling guilty about their own sin. And this is what God wants of us.
Are we blameless? Here's the sixth mark. The sixth mark is that we shine brightly. Now notice what he says here. He says, among whom you shine. He's talking about that crooked and depraved generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, talking the word of God, so that in the day of Christ Jesus I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, all these marks are building upon each other. Obedience, maturity, God working in you, no complaining, blameless, pure, also that we can be an influence ultimately in the world. That's what God wants. He wants his followers to be his influence, his light, as we hold out the word of life. My friends, that we hold out the word of life when you pray with a coworker. You hold out the word of life when you go to lunch and tell your story or ask them their story. You hold out the word of life when you do face painting at the Family Film Friday, which is coming up this Friday. Hope you come. You hold out the word of life when you invest into our children in the children's ministry. You hold out the word of life when you adopt a child who is in a horrible situation that you can bring them up in love and admonition, uh, admonition of the Lord. You hold out the word of life when you mentor a woman or you mentor a man. You hold out the word of life. You hold out the word of life when you go on a mission project and see God do the impossible. Recently, our students went to Mexico and they were holding out the word of life as a light for him. Watch this. My name is Tyler Nisley. Uh, my name is Alyssa Hansen. My name is Caleb. My name's Alex. Uh, I'm Daniel Lotney. My name is Grace Powers. My soul is cold and dead in the I think a way that I saw God working was through our team and through how we were all able to use our different strengths, which, I mean, we're just a bunch of students. I saw God working in our team to help grow us closer together and teaching us how to have sympathy and compassion on those who are less fortunate than ourselves. When all the kids were all around just playing games and they always came up and said, like, why, why'd you just, why'd you come? And we just started telling them, because we wanted to help serve you and like, teach you about God. I think it was the Bible distribution, just uh, going around and um, handing out Bibles. That was definitely the most impactful moment because you got to, uh, you got to share the gospel to other people and make sure that they have a Bible.
Um, just with everybody's willingness to serve and help, like everybody seemed to be happy and just was all there for him. Um, I feel like the BBS and like the and passing out of the Bibles kind of definitely showed the community like the church's presence and like their willingness to connect with everyone. So the application is, are you shining brightly? Is this true of you? I will say, just as a side note, our youth pastor, Adam, and his uh, leadership team are doing a phenomenal job with our kids, and I'm so appreciative of that. So thank you, guys. Let me close out with this last mark, and it's that we're poured out. What's interesting is Paul kind of uses himself as an uh, illustration to the, the Philippians. He says this. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, strange word, drink offering upon the sacrifice offered of your faith, so they're the sacrifice of faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. See, what Paul's doing is he's looking at the Old Testament sacrificial system and he's making an illustration. There was always an animal that was sacrificed and placed upon the altar to burn. And he is saying, you Philippians are kind of like that offering. You've presented yourself. He says, here's where I've come in. I've come in like a drink offering. Now, a drink offering was pure wine that was either poured at the head of the, uh, the sacrifice or right on the sacrifice and it would burn up and there would be this just incredibly pleasing aroma. Now that sounds kind of weird to us, but if you put it in a different context and you put a very nice steak on your grill and a nice wine marinade right on top of that, everybody in the neighbors, uh, neighborhood's like, hey, we're going to the Marshalls. That's great. That's the kind of, it's the aroma that was pleasing. Now, here's the point. Paul was saying, I'm being poured out upon the sacrifice of your service and both combined are a pleasing aroma to God. It tells us, A, that there's teamwork in the body of Christ, that we work with each other. We each make a sacrifice. But I think what Paul is illustrating is that we have to be willing to be poured out. See, this was common with Paul, to be expended. He said of the, to the Corinthian church, he said this, he says, I will very gladly spend for you everything that I have and, and expend myself as well. You see, this is in contrast to a lot of people that say, you know what, I have my space, I have my home, I have my stuff, you have your stuff. 
Paul blends it all together, says everything that I have, expended. I will give you anything you need. I will expend myself. I will go to you anytime you need. And so he's addressing an attitude that he wants the believers, Christ followers, to have. Why does he do that? Because of Christ. Remember, he's the model. Did not Christ expend everything for us? And so he wants the same for us. I look at heroes of the faith for me. There's one old hero. Her name was Corrie ten Boom. I read her book, Hiding Place, years ago. Corrie ten Boom was an elderly lady who had been in, in Auschwitz, I believe. She was in a prison camp. She was a Jewish individual who was persecuted, made it out alive miraculously. And for over five decades, this woman ministered and poured out her life for others. She developed a rehab center. And then she started speaking. She ended up going in the five decades, she ended up going to over 60 different countries, pouring out her heart, pleading with people to exhibit the character of Christ in their life. She wrote books. She wrote Hiding Place. She wrote Tramp for the Lord and many other books. And those that have really profoundly impacted people, I would encourage you to get them and read them to your kids. But she says this about service. If there's anybody qualified to talk about pouring their life out in service, it's, it's Corey Tim Boom. She says, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. Church, are you being poured out in service for God? In the last verse, Paul says, I am glad and rejoice, and hopefully you are glad and rejoice in me. And the idea is that rejoicing and gladness comes when we exhibit the humility of Christ, the maturity of Christ in our life. So here's what I want to do in application. We have the list of all seven of these marks on the, on the, on the screen. I would like you to pick one that you would say, you know what, that's where I felt convicted the most and I'm going to ask God to in the next day, the next week, the next month to do a work in my heart. But we're going to close with a song of rejoicing because the song is about how God is so good to us. But please take a mark, take a mark that you want God to do and improve in your life. Just take one right now. You can take the others and work on them. But take one in application. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to be true worshipers. And we know that true worshipers take your word and apply it to our hearts. And so, Lord, as we come to, uh, come to the end of just listening to what your word has to say, I pray that you would help us in the area of obedience. Help us to mature in you as, you, as we work out our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would work in us so that we would be connected to you. That there would not be a complaining spirit within us, that we would be blameless and pure. That we would shine out brightly and that we would be poured out in ministry to others. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us in the area of weaknesses and shore us up and encourage us in the areas where we are strong. And so, Lord, we lift up our lives to you and we sing in our hearts that you are so good.